It's fantastic to be here this morning. I'm going to take my glasses off, actually. They're going to go on and off because I've got one of those problems where I can't read this, but I can't see you, and so on and so forth. So, um, I'm, I'm Tess at the cathedral. I'm known as Canon Tess. That's hilarious, trying to explain to people what a canon is in the Church of England. Um, so Tess will do, won't it? That will be just fine. Um, I'm the canon missioner at the cathedral, which is a blessing and a joy. It's a new post that was created last year, Um, and I'm the person that they've got. My background is with school uh, and with university. I've been a teacher for years. Uh, I was a a tutor and a fellow at uh, Worcester College in Oxford at the university there as well. So lots of kind of theology background, um, but just a real heart for trying to explain uh, the gospel, the word of Jesus uh, to people who don't know anything about it at all. Um, And when you are a chaplain, you spend a lot of your life on the edges, really, of the room, uh, trying to talk to people who really don't believe at all. Just before I left Oxford, one of my favourite quotations was a student who came up to me and said, the chapel, she said, that's great. I used to be a Christian. I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. Any, any chance that you'll come back to it? She went, no, I've grown out of that, like most people do. Um, <laughs> and I went, oh, I haven't grown out of it yet, and I'm in my 50s, but uh, you know, maybe you'll come back to it. Maybe you'll come back to it. But that's what, that's what I lived with, was all the time um, a kind of attitude towards Christianity, that it was something you just grew out of and that you didn't need. And yet all around me was this obvious, powerful need for God's peace and God's purpose in their lives and the presence of God, as we've been talking about this morning. And so I'm blessed, really, really blessed that uh, 1 Kings 19 um, is the piece uh, that I've been given, the the piece of God's word that I've been given to talk about today, to read through with you um, and to have the chance to explore a little bit. And I know that you've been exploring Elijah already, who is such a cool prophet. I'm really excited that I'm here to talk about Elijah with you. Um, He is the prophet, really. He's the Marvel hero. Um, He's powerful. He's strong. Uh, He did incredible things on Mount Carmel. And we're taking the next step on Elijah's journey, and we're going to find out how God is with him. And we're going to tease out some of those ideas around God being with him, God's presence with him for our own lives this morning. And it's fantastic everything that we've done up to this point now that I hope is kind of preparing our hearts for what God might be saying to us. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord Jesus, we're here to give our whole lives to you, to offer everything that we are to you, all the bad bits, all the good bits. Transform us. Make us ready to give your love to the world. We pray that through this passage today, we might hear your word directly and clearly speaking straight to our hearts and that we might leave this place knowing more of what you want to do for us in our lives and knowing more of what we can do for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Kings 19 is longish. (laughs) 
but we'll go through it step by step. Glasses on, can now see the text, can't see you terribly well, but that's fine. So Ahab told Jezebel, King Ahab goes to his wife. He told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid. He got up and he fled for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. I'm going to go through it bit by bit. As I said, it's a long one. So Queen Jezebel, who is a powerful woman, has heard what Elijah has done. 450 prophets he has slaughtered. She's heard this and she is not a happy woman. Uh, and she has put the fear of God into Elijah, which gives us some idea, I think, of how powerful, how evil she was. She's really scared him because she says, I am going to kill you. I'm going to do to you what you have done to those prophets. And it says starkly there, that verse, then he was afraid. And he goes to Beersheba. He's up in Mount Carmel, which is up in the north of the kingdom. She's the queen of the north part of Israel. Um, and he flees all the way down to the south to Beersheba, um, which is in the southern kingdom in Judah, out of her control. And it says that when he got there, he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a solitary broom tree. So he's left his servant. He's told him to stay where he is. And he has gone a day's journey into the wilderness. We know, don't we, what Jesus does when he goes into the wilderness a place to escape, a place to get away from it all, a place to really try and look at what's going on in his heart and to connect deeply with God. And he came and sat down under a solitary broom tree and he asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the broom tree and he fell asleep. There's a lot of extraordinary bits in this uh, passage, but that, I think, is the start of them. It is enough, O Lord. I've had enough. Take away my life. What an incredible thing to say. We get some measure of just how he is feeling at this point, how bad it is for him. And just think back to that time when he was on Mount Carmel and the fire that he brought down from God. That incredible thing that he was able to do, the power in him. It is enough, O Lord. Take my life from me. And he lay down under the broom tree 
and he fell asleep. And suddenly an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. And he got up and he ate and he drank. We've talked already this morning about imagining Jesus there standing next to us with his arm on our shoulder. This angel appears at his lowest point and touches him and says, get up and eat. And not only that, provides the cake and the water. God is providing for him at his lowest ebb, at a time when he thinks, it is enough, take my life from me. He couldn't be further than rock bottom. And the angel touches him and says, get up and eat. Get up and eat. And why must he get up and eat? He got up, he ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. And at that place, he came to a cave and he spent the night there. 40 days, 40 nights he travels. He comes to Horeb, the Mount of God, and he spent the night there in a cave. And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's a bit unfair. It was God that brought him there. What are you doing here, Elijah? We're going to dwell on that question a bit for ourselves. What are you doing here? And Elijah's very happy to give him an answer. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they're seeking my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is about to pass by. Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. It's where Moses was. And the same thing happened to Moses. The Lord is about to pass by. Go and meet with the Lord. So Elijah, who is used to this, he's got a good connection with God. He's ready to go out and meet the Lord. And he thinks, all right, I'll go and do that. I will go out and I will meet the Lord in this holy mountain, this extraordinary place. And he's at a very, very low ebb. He's been traveling for 40 days and 40 nights. I imagine there's repentance in his heart. But the whole feeling of this is so radically different to the last story that we heard on Carmel, to his experiences on Mount Carmel. When everything was good, he was really deeply connected to God. He produced this incredible fire 
in front of the prophets of Baal. He told them. He'd been telling him. He told them again. He did that incredible thing. There is the fire of God. The whole of this chapter has got a really different feel to it. He's at this lowest ebb. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's afraid. He said that. I'm afraid. And now when God asks him, what are you doing here? He says, I'm afraid and I'm also alone. No other prophets left, just me. Jezebel has killed all the other prophets. It's just me. I'm alone and I'm afraid. And God has asked him to walk from Beersheba to Horeb. And it's taken him 40 days and nights, which as we know is that wonderful symbolic time of repentance of preparation for meeting with God and he comes to this mountain and on this mountain he meets with God he's preparing to meet with God God said come out I'm going to pass by and you'd kind of expect at this point with all his experience thus far that this is going to be quite a powerful meeting he is an extraordinary man. If we go back on my slides a little bit, there's a, I've put a couple of statues of him. Um, and the thing that's wonderful about both those statues, and you go back to the very first one, this one, you can't see it terribly well. That's him in his um, cave on Mount Carmel. And uh, all you can see is this kind of hand, this power that he's bringing with him. And the whole statue is kind of dynamic and in movement. And the next slide shows you the same man as imagined in stone uh, at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And again, he's, he's strong, this hand that he's using to bring down the power of God. And there's great movement in all his clothes. A strong man, a powerful man, a man of courage and faith. And now we're in that cave on the top of the mountain. And he's a very different man. Things have changed for him. Times have moved on. He's had that period of time when he felt like he was at the pinnacle and he knew everything. And now he just doesn't. God's not going to let him die. He's been busy feeding him cake so he is not going to let him die. He's moved him on his way. He said, there's a journey to be done. You've got to walk with me. I'm going to take you to the mountain. And mountains in the Bible are always used as these incredible places between heaven and earth. And any of you who are walkers and you've been up to the Lake District or to the Scottish mountains or the Welsh mountains, you feel that, that connection with nature, that sense that you're really out there and close, close to God. That's what mountains are used for in the Bible. God brings the people that he cares about into the wilderness, into the mountains, and he says, I know that you are having a difficult time I know that in your heart it's arid and dry and you're exhausted and you've had these extraordinary experiences that now you've got no place for. You don't know where to put them. Imagine if you'd been Elijah on Mount Carmel. Imagine what that would have been like. 
How's he supposed, what's he supposed to do with all of that? Well, and it's brought him right down again when Jezebel and her armies are after him. And God says, I know, I know what it's like to have that aridness and dryness in your heart, to feel empty, but I'm going to nourish you twice. That's two lots of cake. I am going to nourish you. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to take you on a journey with enough time to reflect, to connect back to me, to allow yourself to process everything. And then I'm going to take you up to that mountain, to that cave. And at the cave, God says, come stand outside because the Lord is about to pass by. Now, there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of sheer silence. Elijah knows how to meet God in fire. And when that wind came, he was expecting God. He'd been told, God is going to pass by. Come out of the cave. God is going to pass by. And there was this wind so strong that it shattered mountains and broke rocks into pieces, the Bible says. It was strong. We've had a few strong winds over the past year. We've had times when if you'd gone outside and stood there and let it buffet you around and watched the trees and heard the creaking and worried about the tiles on the roof, and you probably did say, where is God? <laughs> or there is God. That, that power of nature. The Bible says, no, God was not in the wind. God was not in the wind. And I love the way the Bible condenses stuff. We've got literally a couple of verses, and in those verses, we've got an astonishingly strong wind, followed by an earthquake, and then it moves on. And um, can you imagine? I mean, so he's had this incredibly powerful wind, and then the earth shakes it literally shakes around him. And he's up there in that cave on Mount Horeb and the earth is shaking around him and he is ready to meet the Lord at that point because this is power. This is power. And so in his heart, he is ready to meet the Lord. And to be honest, all the fear that he's been feeling and that sense of terror and loneliness and everything else, probably exacerbated by this point, so he is ready to meet the Lord as the ground starts to shake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And then there is fire. At this point, my imagination struggles somewhat. I'm not sure where the fire was, but then he brought down fire on Mount Carmel, so then there was fire. And that's the bit that Elijah would have been expecting. And he would have thought, the Lord will be in the fire. I will hear the voice of the Lord in the fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And then, after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. And that's when he hears God speak. That's when God speaks to him. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. God speaks to him in the silence. And what God does is to ask him the same question again, which seems a bit unfair. He's gone through all of this. He's ready to hear the voice of the Lord. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. Again, there's wonderful movement to that, isn't there? I wish I was an artist. There's so much about this I would like to draw. He wrapped his face in the mantle. And he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Same question. And here's the interesting thing. Elijah gives the same answer. So Elijah's answer is still about his fear and his loneliness. But you can tell that there's a difference. Something has changed. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they are seeking my life to take it away. And then the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. And also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meloah, as prophet in your place. I'm going to stop there in terms of the bit that I'm going to read from the Bible. It goes on a little bit further, 1 Kings 19, uh, when we hear about Elisha saying, I'm, I'm really up for that, but if you don't mind, I've just got a couple of things to do first, and then I'll come and follow you, which he does, which he does, which is good news. But I want to come back to how God treats Elijah at this time. I want us to think about the mountain. 
I want us to think about the fact that he's taken him into the wilderness. That the angel has equipped him for that, has nourished him, has fed him, ready for that journey. That that journey has been a time as well of repentance and reflection. Where is God in my life? What am I doing? What's happening? Why is everything changing? God leads him on this journey and takes him to the mountain. And the mountain he takes him to is no ordinary mountain. This is the only other time in the Bible where Horeb is talked about. The first time, the main time, of course, is in Exodus. It's with Moses. This is the mountain where God reveals the Ten Commandments. This is the mountain where Moses sees God in the burning bush. It's quite a special mountain. We don't get to hear much about it after that. But now, here's Elijah. So he's been brought to this place, this extraordinary place of revelation. When we think about Elijah in the New Testament, there's actually quite a lot of Elijah in the New Testament. Um, He's such an amazing man that when John the Baptist turns up, when Jesus turns up, and both those people say, who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? And the first person always that everyone goes, Elijah, you Elijah, have you come back? Elijah didn't die. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot. He ascended. He didn't die. So everybody's waiting for him to come back again. My Jewish friends have this. I love this. I love this. If a dog is unusually happy for no particular reason, there's no food around, uh, then my Jewish friends will say it's because Elijah's presence is here. At Shabbat, the Jewish meal on a Friday, often there's a chair left for Elijah. You never know when he's coming back. You leave a chair for Elijah. He's there in the Quran as well. The story about the prophets of Baal. So he's an amazing, amazing prophet. And people thought that maybe Jesus was Elijah. And one of the reasons they thought that was because they got to the point of believing that when Elijah returns, he is bringing in the kingdom of God. He's going to return and bring with him the kingdom of God. And so this incredible man, Jesus, must be Elijah coming back again. He's bringing in the kingdom of God. Little do they know. He is the kingdom of God. He really, really is bringing it back again. And do you remember in terms of mountaintops, the Mount of Transfiguration, where God's glory is revealed to Peter, to James, and to John, and they suddenly really work out who Jesus is. And who is it that helps them to work out? Elijah and it's Moses who are up there on the mountaintop with Jesus. Elijah is guiding us closer to that sense of what Jesus is telling us about our lives, what God can do for our lives, and the fact the kingdom is coming and we have a place. We have a place and a a whole duty to bring that kingdom on. So Elijah, at his lowest point, is fed, he is nourished 
twice. He is taken on a long journey of repentance and preparation. He's taken to the top of the mountain of Mount Horeb, the place where God is revealed. And then he meets God in a way that he totally was not expecting. In fact, all of this he has not been expecting. None of it is as he thought it was going to be. And I know that in all of our lives, we have had that experience. And that we can look back, and there are stories in our lives of times when things were just running fantastically well, and we were really at the top of everything. And then suddenly, we drop. We fall into that difficult and dark space. Perhaps not as dark as Elijah felt, but he's been there before you. He has been there before you. And it's here in the Bible, and this story has been given to us for exactly that reason. You are not alone. If you felt like that, if you've been ready to give up, it is enough, is what he said. It is enough. If you felt like that, then God knows exactly how you're feeling and God is going to care for you, to look after you, but you better be ready because he's taking you on a journey. And it's a journey where you are not going to get what you expect. Everything that you think you can imagine, it's not going to be like that. Poor old Elijah. He'd got the hang of fire. Wasn't like that. He was ready for strong winds. He was even ready for the earthquake. None of that. It was in the still, small voice of sheer silence. And then God asks him again, what are you doing here? So we can be, we can expect to be lifted up, to be nourished, to be accompanied, but we will be grilled by God. What are you doing here? Not once, but twice. What are you doing here? I don't know if you've ever heard that thing. It's absolutely true. Um, in the workplace, in home, wherever you are, when you first ask somebody, how are you doing? And honestly, just that question is fantastic for unlocking lots of, lots of things. How are you doing at the moment? How are you? And what the mental health experts tell us to do is to pause, to listen to the, I'm fine. And then to say, how are you? It's exactly what God's doing here exactly what God's doing here. And in exactly the same way, the second time round, Elijah says the same things, but you can tell from what comes next, because what God says next is, go, got a plan for you, pick yourself up, I'm about to send you off. So you know that Elijah is ready now, that it's different, that asking that question the second time is different and that Elijah is ready for what comes next. He wasn't expecting it. He didn't think this was what he was going to have to do. He's got two more kings to anoint, and he's got a successor to sort out. 
It's a lot of work. He was not planning on that. He'd lay down underneath the broom tree and he was ready well, he was ready to die, but he was certainly ready to go to sleep. So he really didn't. He didn't have the energy for any of this. But by the time we get to this bit of 1 Kings 19, he is ready. He's ready to go. And it's God that has got him there. But the way that God has got him there is bit by bit by bit by bit. So every time you think that maybe God's finished with you now, it's not true. God hasn't. God's got the next steps for you. But right at the heart of the story, of that small, still voice of sheer silence, that is the bit that we hold on to now. That is the most important part. Exactly as we were doing here, as we were singing, as we were worshipping, I come into your presence, Lord. I love your presence, Lord. How else can we find out what it is that God has got for us? This is what Elijah teaches us. I come into your presence, and when you come alongside me, I recognize you, God, and I welcome you. I come into your presence, Lord Jesus, in the stillness, in the silence, and I know that if I give my whole life to you, you are going to do extraordinary and wonderful things with it. So can we just spend a moment or two now in silence thinking about that journey that Elijah has been on, thinking about our own lives and where we are, giving thanks to God for that example and for those deep connections with the life of Jesus and with bringing in that kingdom. So let's pray.